0: Zechariah, next to last book, chapter 7, we did chapters 1 through 6 last week because I'm an idiot, (laughs) and today we're going to do chapters 7 and 8. This is a five-sermon series, and so there will be three more after today in case you were curious, I didn't make that clear. A friend of mine will be here next week named Aaron Osborne, he is a pastor down in Florida, he's visiting San Diego, and so I recruited him to join in this series since he has preached through Zechariah himself. And so you will enjoy meeting Aaron and hearing from him next week. Let's let's just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us right now. Spirit of God, we do, we pray you'd meet us now. We would hear your voice through your word. You tell us your word is living and active. So let us experience that right now, we pray, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, why are you here today? Why are you here today? Did you feel like you had to come? And so you did. Did you come out of habit? So what did I do on Sunday mornings. Did mom and dad drag you? <laughs> I had to come. Why are you here? Why, why do you give financially to your local church? Why do you do that? I, I hope you have that conviction of, I'm a steward. All I have has been entrusted by God to be used as he directs. But, but why do you give financially? A sense of duty? sense of obligation? You know the church has to keep the lights on, these bright fluorescent lights. Or, you know, you're you're reimbursing people for some religious goods and services you receive. Why? Why do you give financially? Why do you pursue fellowship with other people? Why do you go to your small group? Why do you go to your small group and open up your life and share your struggles, confess sin, ask for help, receive care and prayer? Why do you do that? Why do, you, why do you go down to Bridge of Hope and tutor and provide food and reach out? Why do you care for your neighbors and friends and co-workers? Why, why do you serve right here in the local church? Why serve on a ministry team? Why help in children's ministry? Why do you do that? I, I ask these why questions not to be antagonistic. I ask because God cares about the why. God cares about why we do all those things. He cares about our hearts. He cares about our goals, the end to which we do them. In other words, in other words, God cares about what you could call true religion. Religious activity, if you will, that that is rightly motivated. True religion, these things done to the honor and praise and and glory of God. God cares about that, and He addresses that through this passage. Here Here we find three essential ingredients for what I would call true religion. And we need to know that, don't we? We need to know how God wants us to think about all those activities and many, many more. And how they're done in ways that He says are honoring to Him. So what is what is true religion? Let's answer that question in three ways. First, true religion, we find here, true religion obeys God's word in chapter 7. True religion obeys God's God's word. You see, Zechariah is writing to people who had been exiled from their land, the Jewish people, over to Babylon. Jerusalem was destroyed, their temple was leveled. Now some have been allowed to come back by the Persians, and they've laid a foundation for a new temple, but then the work was stopped, and it stopped for 16 years. Then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, as directed by God, began to call the people to begin rebuilding the temple again. They started in 520 B.C. And now by chapter 7, verse 1, we are told that two more years have passed. So it's now 518 B.C. And the work of the temple rebuilding project has been underway now for some time. So the people responded, they're rebuilding the temple, and they're making great progress which begins to change the situation for the people. They ask now, what, how should we be thinking about our religious activity given that we're going to have a temple again? And so people come with a question in verse 3. An individual asks on behalf of a, a delegation, verse 3, Should I weep and abstain or fast in the fifth month? as I have done for so many years. We've been fasting to show our mourning over the temple and our mourning and sadness over our sin. Should we keep doing that now? It's being rebuilt. Should we continue the fasts that commemorated the destruction of the temple and our city? With this new situation coming, a temple being rebuilt, what should our religious practice look like? And God answers their question with a few questions of his own. He says in verse 4, chapter 7, verse 4, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years of exile, was it for me? That you fasted. That, that's the why question, isn't it, that I was asking? Had they really fasted for him? He asked. It's a key question for what we're doing right here. Is it for him? It's a key question in our serving, in our giving, in all of our living. Is it, is it for him? And then he, he elaborates in verse 6. And when you eat and when you drink, Do you not eat for yourselves? Your feasting, was it not for yourselves? In other words, we can do religious acts in ways for ourselves to to make ourselves feel good or or make ourselves look good. Jesus addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't He? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Beware of, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them to be noticed. He said we can, we can give, we can pray, we can even fast to, to be noticed. So interesting. You can, you can practice self-denial for selfish reasons. You can fast to be noticed, to put on a show. Instead, Jesus says, do those things in secret because your Father, your Father notices and He sees what is done in secret and He will reward you. So God is probing our hearts, isn't He? He was probing their hearts 2,500 years ago and He's probing ours right now, which leads Him to the core issue in verse 7. Here's the core issue. We're not... Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? When Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with their cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited, in other words, aren't we in this situation because we rejected God's word about these things? Weren't we exiled because we rejected God's word through the prophets? We did not obey His word. This is the core issue. And then he lists some specific evidences, some specific forms of obedience that he is calling them to repentance about. Verse 8, there's some specific ways he was calling them to obey his word. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. So he lists the vulnerable in society. They had no kind of social safety net. These are the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the refugee, the immigrant, the poor. He says care about these people. Show compassion to these people kind of like a book I read on the Tour de France, the famous bike race, the Tour de France. This book was about how in that bike race, they actually celebrate the person who comes in last place. He has to finish the race, but the person who comes in last place is celebrated. And and riders who are lagging back, they compete sometimes to be the one who comes last. I'm not making this up. Because they get this celebrated red lantern. It's kind of like the red light of a caboose of a train. So you imagine, they've got the red light, the red lantern, at the back of the train, and they compete to get the red lantern. Because if you don't finish first, this is an honor to finish last. It is celebrated. And that's kind of how God wants us to think. For those, the world says, they're last. They're coming in last. They're the losers. God says, I want you to focus on them. I want you to care about them. Society says, they're in last place. Who cares? My people, he says, are to be different. They are to reflect the mercy and compassion of God that they themselves have received. And in case none of that hits home <laughs> in case none of that brings some conviction God adds here let no one plot or think evil of each other so don't don't even plan any ill will toward each other so it's a call it's a call to obey God's word it's a call to obey God's word to by administrating justice probably in the court system in that day and to show mercy and compassion to those in need, and to do good and to think well of each other. It's it's the New Testament uh, version James, of James 127. The Old Testament version of James 127. Religion that is pure. And undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's the Old Testament version as well of uh, Galatians 6.10. As we have opportunity, let us do good, to do good to everyone. And notice, especially, especially to those of the household of faith. Begin right here, God is saying. So true religion... It involves obeying those kinds of passages, and we need to hear that, don't we? I need to hear that. There was an experiment that I read about, a concerning experiment for me that I read about of some seminary students. They were asked to give an extemporaneous sermon, a kind of on-the-spot sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's the parable you're probably aware of, the, the despised Samaritan who walks by a guy in need. and You know, all the religious people walk by and don't help him out, but the, the despised Samaritan stops and helps the guy out. So these seminary students are, are called to, in the experiment, called to give an extemporaneous sermon on that parable, caring for the distress. But in the experiment, they set it up that they had to walk past A person on the ground groaning. A person in need. They had to walk down the sidewalk, past this person groaning in distress. And they found that most of the seminary students, if they had been pressured to hurry and get to their appointment, walked right past the person in need. They're going to preach on God's Word, caring for your neighbor, right? Right? And they're going to neglect God's word by not doing so. Isn't that how we are? Or can be? This is what God is saying. People come asking about ritual. God asks about their repentance in light of his word, which brings us again to the core issue, which he highlights once more in verse 11 comes back to the core issue in verse 11. They refused to pay attention, those people, that earlier generation. They refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they may not hear, might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former Prophets. He's saying the heart of the matter is a refusal to hear and heed God's word. Do you see that with me? Zechariah uses a few image, images to communicate that. He, he says that they had a stubborn shoulder. It's a, it's a picture of an animal that refuses to have a yoke placed on it. If you have a dog and it, it refuses to take a, a leash so you can walk it, it's kind of like that. He says their ears are, are Stopped up. They they put earplugs in to tune out God's Word. That Their hearts, he said, are diamond hard. Isn't that vivid imagery? Diamond hard. Nothing can penetrate it. This is always, friends, the central issue. Will we trust God and so submit to God that we seek to obey His Word? This was the issue in the garden, at the dawn of humanity, will those first humans trust God and submit to God so they obey His Word? It's the same issue for us today. Will you and I so trust God that we submit to God and seek, as He enables us, to obey His Word? So ask yourself, friends, ask yourself, How is Scripture directing the why for me? How is Scripture right now speaking to the motivations of my, quote, religion? How is Scripture shaping my behavior? Or is it? Am I keeping His book closed so it doesn't change me? Here's how you can know, here's how you can evaluate. When was the last time you intentionally repented of something after reading it in his word? I have to ask myself that. I'm not sure. Maybe it's been a little while. God says, here's true religion, my people. Responding to my word, letting it transform you from within in ways that get seen in love and seen in mercy and seen in compassion. This is true religion in God's eyes, He says. And then secondly, we find here as we read on in chapter 8, secondly, true religion responds to God's work. It responds to God's work. You see, returning from exile for these people, coming back from Babylon in exile... It meant great hope, great, great expectation for what God was going to do. The prophets were talking it up. It's going to be fantastic. But then life was hard. The rebuilding was, was opposed, and that's why they, they stopped. So Zechariah is ministering to people with unfulfilled hopes. Can you relate to that? I thought my life would be like this, but it's like this. I thought I'd be married by now, but I'm not. I thought my marriage would be like this, but it's not. I thought I'd have children by now, but I don't. Or I thought my children would be like this, but they're not. Or I thought my job would be like this, but it's not. I thought, I thought my health would be like this. But, but it's not. This is what life was like for them. Some major theological unfulfilled hopes. And so God now in chapter 8 encourages them. Okay, It's not all conviction. Now in chapter 8 he encourages them with specific statements about what he is and will do. And each one begins with this Thus says the Lord phrase, look at verse 2, chapter 8, verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous, passionate for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. So here here are the headwaters for all God does. He is a passion for His people, a jealous concern for His people. He is devoted to you passionately. Do you believe that? And he describes his work out of his passion. Verse 3, thus says the Lord, I have returned, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So he says, my, my presence is already back with you guys and going to be all the more for this great transformation to happen. Verse eight, uh, verse 4, rather, chapter 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, he goes on, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand, because of great age. They're going to have a longer life. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. You've got to realize the city had been largely desolate, largely depopulated. God's saying, People are going to live longer again, and you're going to have children again, the next generation playing in the streets. That's already happening in ways, but he says, much more to come. This is my work in your midst. He goes on, chapter 8, verse 7. Verse 7 Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. God said, I'm going to gather all my scattered people. That was happening. It's going to happen all the more, a whole lot more. This is my work, he says. It's already happening. I'm doing my work already. There's a now element, but it's also largely future. I'm now at work, and I will be at work in greater and greater and greater ways. It's kind of like the situation in which we live. Unfulfilled hopes sometimes. Living in this already and not yet. The Christian life has a a now element. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've turned to Him to trust in His life, death, and resurrection. You now have forgiveness of sins. You now have freedom from slavery to sin. You now have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. But there's more to be done, isn't there? We still sin. We still get sick. We still suffer. We still live in a world that is very fallen and broken. So it is this tension between now and more to come. But God is saying, I am at work and I promise I'm going to be at work in ways you can't Imagine, in fact, he he alludes in verse 6, I believe it is. It's going to be marvelous in your eyes. It's ordinary to me. I'm at work now in your midst, my people, and I'm going to blow your socks off. And this is the way in which he calls them to respond, to respond to his work. Look at verse 9. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, Here's your response. Let your hands be strong. See the response? Same one in verse 13, in case we missed it, in verse 9. Here's the response. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Let your hands be strong. In other words, keep giving yourselves to the work. Why? Because I'm at work and will be in great, great ways. It's it's kind of, I think, a kind of an, an envisioning with purpose. It's giving purpose, isn't it? There's a famous story you may have heard about Steve Jobs when he was alive and leading Apple Computer. He wanted to recruit uh, an executive from PepsiCo company, corporation. And he said to this individual, he said, do you want to make sugared water for the rest of your life or do you want a chance to change the world? Now, I don't agree with Steve Jobs' view of vocation, all right? You can make sugared water to the glory of God, right? If you are making Pepsi to the glory of God, that's great, right? You work unto the Lord, whatever you do. But it's a good picture of purpose. And I think that's what God is doing here. He's saying to his people, I invite you to see my work and join in as I change the world. So, yes, it's going to involve sacrifice. It's going to involve giving your time and your talent and energy, doing setup and takedown. It's not glamorous. Serving in children's ministry today, ushering and greeting, reaching out to your community. It's going to take sacrifice, time, energy. It's going to take giving of our financial resources. In ways that we feel, right? The gospel, the good news calls us to that. To so be amazed by the generosity of God that we invest gladly and generously into His purpose. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt sometimes. The world says that's crazy. Giving financially. Volunteering your time and energy to set up speakers and care for children That's crazy. God says that's not crazy. That's my invitation to join in what I'm doing. Join in my work as true religion among my people. Fear not, he says. Let your hands be strong. Fear not, Grace Church. Let your hands be strong. I thought about this for myself. Try to think about, Tab, how does this apply to yourself? I thought about how sometimes, sometimes I get cynical. I think about the church, Jesus Christ. I think about sometimes pastors who have fallen morally. I think about church splits. I think about Christians I know and respect that are unreconciled. I I confess to you, it's it's an area of sin in my life. I I get cynical. But I have to say, what God wanted His people in Zechariah's day to say, if God is is at work in the church, and God promises to be at work in His people, then let me be at work there too. You need to hear that yourself. You need to hear the Lord saying to you, Let your hands be strong, my child. Let your hands be strong. I'm at work in my people. Keep giving yourself to it. Let your hands be strong. He wants to use our ordinary lives. For his extraordinary work. And you see that in verse 13. I skipped an important part. Back to verse 13. And as you have been a byword. Of cursing among the nations. O house of Judah. And house of Israel. So I will save you. And notice. And you shall be a blessing. Now those are very significant significant words at the end. That's echoing. God's statement to a guy named Abraham way back in Genesis 12 when God made an astounding promise to this guy named Abraham. He said, Abraham, guess what? going to make you in a great family, give you a land, etc. And through your family will be blessing to all families, all peoples, all nations of the earth. Don't try this at home. God, through your family, Abraham will be blessing to everybody else. That's being echoed right there. God is saying, oh, formerly exiled people struggling in the land, I am still going to fulfill my purpose for you, for the nations. This is what God invites us into. This is why we serve and give and pursue fellowship and gather right here for worship together. We do so responding to what God is doing and will do, building up the church, proclaiming good news to the nations. That's true religion, friends, in action. But don't get the impression don't get the impression that it's somehow all on us. Don't don't hear God saying it's all on your shoulders, Grace Church. It's not. Quite the contrary, because thirdly, true religion hopes in God's grace. Thirdly, true religion hopes in what the grace of God accomplishes through Jesus Christ. You see, thirdly, we get, we get our binoculars out and we look now into the distant future, really the, the end of all of these things and what God will accomplish in reestablishing His people fully and finally by His grace. Chapter 8, verse 19. Verse 19, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast, ah, we're back to that. Thought God had forgotten, right? The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness. And cheerful feasts. Now he returns to the question way back in chapter 7 about fasting. You see that? And he says, here's your answer about your fast. There's going to be feasting. He doesn't really answer the question, does he? (laughs) He never really tells them, should you in 518 BC keep fasting? He doesn't tell them that. He just addresses their hearts, calls them into his work, and has them hope In what he will accomplish, saying, Look, your fasting will one day be over, and it's going to be feasting, celebration, party time, joy, because of what God accomplishes by his grace. Verse 20, verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples, plural, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, verse 22, many. Peoples, plural, and strong nations. Back to that blessing thing, right? Strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. It's kind of an echo of chapter 7. The people come to entreat the favor of the Lord, ask their question. Now the nations are doing that. Now the nations are coming. And Israel is being that blessing to every family of the earth as verse 23 highlights. Thus says the Lord of hosts in those days, notice this ten men kind of symbolic of completion ten men from the nations of every tongue, every language shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. is that great? I love that picture. Now we're looking to the end. It says, in those days, the binoculars are out. It's the distant future. It's the end of the end. Here's the completion. People from every tribe and language and people, nation, join together in one body, the church. Oh, there there are glimmers of this grace along the way throughout Scripture. Glimmers of this grace. Uh, Rahab the prostitute of Jericho. Ruth, the Moabite lady. Other glimmers along the way, but certainly Jesus is key here. Certainly Jesus and the grace he brings is key. He is and was God with us. The people ask, we heard God is with you. We know about God with us in the flesh. We know about Emmanuel as we celebrate at Christmas. We know about God with us, taking on our humanity, living a perfect life, dying to take away our sins, rising from the grave, pouring out the Spirit on His people to be God with us right now, friends. We are a glimmer of this as well. A room full of different people. A room full of different people probably wouldn't be hanging out together, left to ourselves. A room full of people joined together because one Great common denominator we share, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So we're a glimmer. Jerusalem of Zechariah's day, kind of a glimmer. All pointing ahead, all pointing ahead to a new Jerusalem. Revelation 21. Catch this. The Apostle John writes, I saw the holy city A new Jerusalem. So here's that old Jerusalem pointing ahead to a new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You see that? God is with us. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God verse 24, by its light will the nations. Here they are. All nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. What I'm saying is true religion, it hopes in grace accomplishing the task, doesn't it? True religion says God's going to do it. I enter in, I participate, I've got that privilege, but grace will triumph. Grace Because the Lamb has purchased people from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And He, as Scripture says, will receive the reward of His suffering. Grace gets the job done. So we, friends, we, as one writer put it, we simply situate ourselves in that larger story. I hope you're seeing the larger story here just covered 2,500 years from Zechariah to today. And then we looked far ahead and the Lord comes or soon, I don't know when. It was not a prediction. Whatever that time frame is. There's a larger story that's bigger than you and me. A larger story that is grander and more glorious than we can comprehend. A story of fasting turned to feasting a story of mourning and and sadness and grief turned into celebration forever. This is the story you need to locate yourself in, friends. Think about about when the religious authorities, they asked Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? It's kind of like this passage. Why don't they do the outward religious, religious activity thing that we're doing? Why don't your disciples fast? You recall Jesus' response? He said, how can they fast? How can they mourn when the bridegroom is with them? Right? No one has a a sad face at a wedding. He said, look, the bridegroom's walking the earth. Why should they fast? Then he said, when he is taken away, speaking of himself, then they will fast. So yes, fasting's still appropriate, if you're wondering. It's still rightly done when properly motivated. But what about, my point is, what about when that wedding has fully and finally come? What about when the eternal wedding reception finally begins? What about when the marriage supper of the Lamb finally arrives and you see your bridegroom face to face? That's when we rejoice. That's what Zechariah is saying. You have reason to rejoice. You have reason because you have that great hope. So so what I'm saying is, friends, see your life in that big story and hope in God's grace today. You might be be suffering right now. I'm not trying to make light of that at all. You might be in mourning right now. You You might be like these people with unfulfilled expectations weighing you down and wearing you out. What you thought your life would look like is is crushing your heart. And hope to you, hope, it just seems like a smoldering candle wick about to be snuffed out. And what I'm saying is God, by His word, He wants to fan that hope back into flame for you and me. He wants you to know that the the eternal dawn will come on your dark night right now. He wants you to see yourself in the movement of this passage from fasting to feasting, from mourning and sadness to joy and celebration because he says you're going to get there. My grace will bring you there. It includes all of us if you are in Christ. This is true religion according to Zechariah. Obeying God's word in real demonstrable ways including mercy and compassion. It's responding to God's work amongst His people. Give yourself to that work because God is at work and will be so friends. But all the while hoping, all the while hoping Because you know grace gets the job done. You know the end of the story. You know how it turns out. You flip to the last page. You know the story ends with feasting. And so you have this hope that sustains you to them. We want to really seal that hope to our hearts by taking the Lord's Supper together. So with those prepared to serve us right now, let's pray. Let's pray and ask for this hope in our hearts and the music team can come. And if you're here and maybe that sense of hope is is so elusive for you right now, you'd almost feel like it's taunting you. I want to ask God to meet you You might just acknowledge to the Lord, I I need your help here. I've been hopeless. Help me to see myself in that bigger story. Or maybe like me, you find yourself cynical in ways. Acknowledge that to the Lord as maybe, maybe a form of unbelief. He wants to meet you, forgive and help you. Maybe there have been ways that God's been speaking to you through His Word, from His Word, and and you have stopped your ears. You can acknowledge that to Him in repentance and faith. Maybe, maybe you don't yet know this, this good news personally. It has seemed to you like a myth or a fairy tale. But maybe now you're realizing you need the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you're seeing that, friend. You can cry out to Him in your heart right now. Saying to Him, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. Thank You for dying and rising for my sins. Please, rescue me from myself please take away my sins and make me one of yours as well you we can pray that to him sorry and thank you and please even now We thank you for this message. This book, 2,500 years old, but so relevant for us right now. Would you meet us where we're hopeless? See the big picture. Would you meet us where we're cynical? And needing an infusion of faith. Would you meet us in our grief and sadness, comforting us with your presence? Would you meet us where we have yet to believe, granting us faith in Jesus Christ? We thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your compassion. Make us a merciful and compassionate people ourselves. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.